You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, we're looking at palliative care in the community. We know that in Europe and the US, more than half of people would prefer to die at home. But whilst hospital deaths in the US have decreased to 36%, in England it's over 50 Later on, we get some advice for generalists on helping patients to have a good death at home. But firstly, BMJ columnist and GP in Glasgow, Des Spence, on why he thinks GPs should take responsibility and lead palliative care in their communities. Palliative care and end-of-life care falls to, to general practice because I, I view that as being a core part of what we do. You can try and involve multiple agencies, you can try and uh, have initiatives, you can try and involve kind of specialist groups and special interest groups. But the problem with that is that if you have more people involved, you, you distill, you, you, you fractionate the kind of responsibility, and you then get a situation where really nobody's sort of overseeing this, nobody's taking responsibility. I mean, I think the general practice is ideally placed to do that because they know the patients, they know the communities, they know the families. I suppose I'm of a generation, I qualify about 25 years ago, and uh, I'd seen some terrible deaths in, in, in that time, you know, people having unnecessary CPR, who were clearly dying, undergoing unnecessary infusions and treatments and their families not being aware of that. There'd been no communication with uh, with families. So when they were told, it came as an absolute kind of shock. The deaths I'd witnessed were very undignified. You had these uh, elderly patients who, who clearly weren't going to benefit from, from intervention dying on acute medical wards with some you know screens as ways of maintaining their, their, their dignity. And I mean, I found it very distressing. And I think the old adage about imagining yourself or your, your loved ones in that situation. And uh, I thought that we could do much better. The problem is that we have medicalized death and uh, by doing so we've uh, stigmatized it, mystified death. When people die in the community, I mean firstly it's better for the uh, for the patient because it's in a familiar environment, they, they have uh, family around them, the family can act as carers but also there's no restriction from who can visit and when they can visit. And the key thing in my experience is that uh, it helps normalize death because you know death is unavoidable. Over the course of time I think that actually aids grieving. My experience, and I've been doing this for a long time, is that to, to deliver good palliative care in the house is, is, or in the home is actually fairly straightforward and fairly easy to do. The key thing in respect to end-of-life care is about leadership. The key thing about end-of-life care is having somebody who is responsible, so somebody you know, so the family can go to, that the patient can go to to discuss issues. So that that leadership has to be through general practice, in my experience. Des Spence there. Find his full column on bmj.com. So what do GPs need to know in order to facilitate better deaths at home? Here's GP and BMJ Assistant Editor Sophie Cook. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr Emily Collis. Emily is a consultant in palliative medicine at the Pembridge Palliative Care Centre and one of the co-authors on our recent BMJ clinical review on caring for the dying patient in the community. Emily, thanks for joining us today. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about people's preferences really. Do many people express a wish to die at home? So the commonest preference is for people to die at home and that's not just something in England, that's something that is has been expressed across Europe and also in the USA and it seems that the more we ask people where they want to die, the more express a strong preference to die at home. Is that something that is commonly achieved if people set a preference to die at home? How many people actually go through to 
to achieve their preference. So there is a gap between people's stated preference and achieving their preference. Um, The gap is quoted as being about 40% that we're not achieving their preference. But that that, um, gap can be narrowed by several different services. For example, if a patient's known to a specialist palliative care service, often they would um, report a a rate of about 80% of achieving their preference. Or if they're on an electronic um, coordination of care system, such as the Coordinate My Care system in London or EMOLST in New York, then they may achieve rates of about 70% of, of, of achieving their preferred place of care. So it is variable. For young people and for people with a cancer diagnosis, it's more common that they would achieve their preference. For older people, we're not quite so good at meeting those preferences. When should GPs and other health professionals in the community think about broaching the subject with a patient? So think about sort of talking about planning death and place of death. I think the most important thing is to follow patients' cues because this is a topic that most healthcare professionals don't feel comfortable about bringing up you know, out of the blue. And it's probably not appropriate that we should be bringing it up unless we are following the patient's cues. And most patients will drop cues at some point. And they may be to a carer who is actually delivering personal care, you know, arising in an informal situation. Or quite often what we see is after a patient has been discharged from hospital, end-of-life care patients commonly have several admissions to hospital in their last year of life and if you like they get diminished returns from those admissions so often the point of discharge home and the first visit at home by the district nurse or the GP is often a good point to say well what did you feel you benefited from from that hospital admission and is there anything we can do to replicate that kind of care at home and to save from having these recurrent admissions. Okay. It's obviously a very sensitive topic and a death at home probably has more implications for family members than, say, a death in a hospice or a hospital. I presume it's obviously good practice to inform the family and keep them up to date with everything. But I just wondered about how you go about doing that, sharing information with the family and getting them involved in the decision. So it is very much um, a team decision and and obviously that's the team of the healthcare professionals but actually more importantly the patient and, and whoever is that patient's family and Society is changing. Um, There are many more patients who identify close friends or partners as being their most significant others. And so that definition of family, we we need to be broad and we need to be inclusive and we need to be guided by the patient as to whom we we include in that joint decision-making and the network of support that we offer. The key thing is that we ask the patient who they would want us to include in those discussions and it's very important that with those patients we make contact soon, we, we offer support, we assess their needs and we try and meet their needs before a crisis arises. With regard to the family and the, or the patient's preferred people to have around them, what information do you feel it's important for them to have I suppose what I'm getting at is that in my experience, sometimes the patient is very keen on a home death, but perhaps the people surrounding them are a little bit more apprehensive. Mm. Mm. And I just wonder about how you broach that topic with them and what you tell them. So I think the important thing is that we try and give 
information to try and prevent there from being any surprises or any anything unexpected that then causes additional concern. So gently um, exploring what the patient's understanding is of what the future holds and then what the carers and the, and the family and, and the next of kin's understanding is of that. Um, some people might come up with very practical questions about what the dying process actually entails and often they can be relieved to hear that for most people it, it's a gentle process, it's a passive process and it's one where the patient is likely to eat less, drink less, become a bit more sleepy, take to their bed more. And then some some people may go on to ask about what they might see and what they might hear. And that's a cue for providing information about the kind of breathing changes you might see or the funny noises that patients may may make with their breathing and those kind of things. And often people are reassured to have that knowledge. I think it's really important to remember that not everybody wants that knowledge and for some people too much knowledge can actually add to anxiety. So it's about at every point in that information giving process is checking the understanding and checking how far the patient and those around them want to go with that information giving process. Once it's been determined that the patient's preference is to die at home and that's what the family and the surrounding people want as well, how does a doctor facilitate that? What can they do to try and help the process run smoothly? So I guess that's around the process of anticipatory or what we call anticipatory care planning. And it's about trying to think about what is likely to occur and then meeting those needs. So one aspect of that is the physical care or support that the patient might need. And um, that may be provided by social services or it may be provided by continuing health care. So obviously you have to make the appropriate referral and the appropriate assessments. And it's better to do that in advance than to wait until a crisis arises. So, so that's one aspect. And then other things on that kind of physical support are, are things like looking at the kind of equipment that the patient might need, things such as a hospital bed. Now, not everybody who dies at home needs a hospital bed in order to die um, comfortably and safely at home, but there's certainly a, a group of patients who do benefit from that. So simple bits of equipment, the hospital bed, commode, um, oxygen if needed. So that needs to be ordered in advance. And then there's the symptom control issues. Now, research quotes a very varied um, range of patients, a percentage of patients who report pain towards the end of life, but it's anywhere upwards of a third of all patients. And that's not just the cancer patients who might spring to the front of our minds, but also non-malignant patients. There's high rates of pain in both chronic renal disease, cardiac failure, many other conditions towards the end of life. So addressing symptoms and addressing them in an anticipatory fashion. So what we would recommend is that you think about what symptoms the patient's likely to experience and order up and prescribe medication so that it's on hand for um, the district nurses to be able to administer on a 24-hour basis. Often crises arise out of hours um, at night time or at the weekends and it's important to have the medication on hand, the prescription chart filled in and then a contact number for the district nurses so that they can have access to the medication that they need at any time. What sort of medications would you be recommending that doctors have sort of ready in case of um, the situation arises? 
So generally um, speaking, for end-of-life care, we prescribe four medications on an as-needed basis. The first of those medications would be an opioid, such as morphine, and that would be the first-line recommendation um, for pain control and also for shortness of breath at the end of life. And often you only need very low doses if the patient hasn't been on strong painkillers in the past. So we would recommend a dose such as 2.5 milligrams subcutaneously of morphine, and that may be administered on an if-needed basis. Patients often need something for agitation, anxiety or restlessness and the first line medication we would normally use for that is midazolam. Midazolam we would prescribe on a PRM basis again at a dose of 2.5 milligrams and if a patient has shortness of breath associated with anxiety the midazolam is also useful for that. Um, patients may also have nausea and many of the antiemetics that we prescribe at the end of the life also have a um, beneficial effect on agitation or terminal agitation. So often the kind of antiemetic that we might prescribe is something like haloperidol, 0.5 milligrams, or levomepromazine. And then the fourth thing is that patients often can have secretions or noisy breathing, commonly called death rattle, at the end of the life. And for that we would prescribe an antimuscarinic, such as buscopan or glycoperonium, on an as-needed basis. And then with all of those medications, so the, the four groups of medications that I've described, if a patient is needing more than roughly two or three doses of PRN medication in any 24-hour period, it would be good practice to commence a low dose of medication in a syringe driver, and that way the patient has a steady delivery of the medication and you're not waiting for a, a sort of peak in the symptom, whatever that symptom is. You're, you're prescribing in advance to try and prevent symptoms from building up. How do you approach the issue of nutrition and hydration in the community? Nutrition and hydration is an incredibly emotionally laden subject, particularly towards the end of life. So the first thing I would say is that when approaching the subject, we should be as informed as possible. Um, there is excellent guidelines and advice available in terms of approaching this towards the end of life and also about the patient's particular circumstance. Really, the, the underlying principle is that patients should be supported to take nutrition and hydration by the oral route as long as, is, as possible. And obviously, during the dying process, that becomes more difficult and the risk of aspiration increases. But actually, we should be adopting a risk management type of approach where we, we discuss those risks with the patient and with the family and carers and we understand that actually it's probably beneficial to take those risks rather than withholding food and fluids. And simple approaches such as thickening fluids can make them very much um, easier to swallow and reduce that risk of aspiration. And also um, modifying the textures of food, so using puree and, and such. And in the normal end-of-life care process, you wouldn't necessarily need to involve a speech and language therapist or a dietitian, but those services can be very useful, particularly in complex, complex cases. 
Is there ever a point at which you do consider things like subcutaneous fluids in patients who are dying in the community? Yes, there certainly is a role for subcutaneous fluids. And that is for patients where often there is a prolonged period where they are unable to take fluid by mouth. That might be because of the disease process itself. For example, a prolonged period of unconsciousness due to a brain tumour or something like that. Or it might be due to more local gut pathology, such as bowel obstruction or sort of upper gastrointestinal um, obstruction or dysphagia. And so if there is a prolonged period of dying, and perhaps beyond a few days or a week or so, then you would certainly consider those fluids. And the aim of the fluids is for symptomatic benefit. It's to prevent, to prevent the uncomfortable sensation of thirst, such that um, patients are maintained in a euvolemic status and not dying in a dehydrated state. Um, the normal process of dying would be that you don't take fluids on board for 72 hours, very roughly speaking. And, and that's probably a beneficial thing because it prevents excess fluid accumulating. But if the process is much longer than that, then certainly there may be distress associated with thirst. Do you think there's a role for integrated care pathways in the community? And if so, what is that role? So I think that's a very topical question, particularly in the light of the Neuberger report, which was published just earlier this week. The recommendation of the report is that we should not continue to use the LCP and that that should be phased out, but that that should in no means interfere with the delivery of excellent end-of-life care across settings. So it's very likely that perhaps we wouldn't need a pathway as such for end-of-life care, but we will need prompts, we will certainly need education, and we will certainly need an integrated way of working across settings and across services. What do you think needs to happen to improve services available for patients wishing to die at home? I think it's um I think the primary challenge is one of resources and perhaps then secondly one of education. The staff that deliver frontline end of life care in the community are often the district nurses and the GPs. So we need to ensure that we have sufficient resource and sufficiently skilled resource and then with the specialist palliative care teams they can provide the advice and the support to help that delivery of care and work alongside in the more complex cases. It's very important, we know that about 20% of patients change their preference in the dying phase or just before the dying phase and wish then to be often admitted to an institution such as a hospice. So we need to make sure that we have resources available so that we can admit patients to their preferred location, such as a hospice, or that we can crisis manage as things arise in the home and, and have a responsive and individualised 24-hour service that's able to provide the care that patients need in the community. And finally, Emily, what key messages would you like generalists to take away from your review? I think that the fundamental 
principle is that everybody dies. And for many of us, we don't see end-of-life care as a glamorous subject. And for some, it's, it's something that's difficult to talk about. But it's actually, as a doctor, one of the things that can give the greatest satisfaction. And certainly when we feel a sense that we've done it well. So I think perhaps if we keep it towards the top of our minds, we think about planning in advance, we think about doing joint decision-making with the patient, with those that the patient chooses to be involved in their care plan, and we're able to deliver the patient's choice of care and, again, very much an individualised care to the patient wherever the patient would want to receive that. Lovely. Thank you, Emily. There's plenty more advice on palliative care on our website, including a practice piece looking at the other side of the coin, caring for a dying patient in hospital. That's everything for this edition. We'll have more for you on Friday, so come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.